Prices are rising and we may need to do some belt tightening. That's what life is here like here at the moment and perhaps that's how the famine in Canaan started. But before too long they were way beyond that. It would have been more like the situation in Kiev at the moment and some of these other Ukrainian cities. You've seen the pictures, supermarket shelves emptying and not being restocked. People starting to look at their dwindling supplies that they have at home and trying to make them last for as long as they can. And imagine being in a situation like that and then suddenly hearing that there's somewhere where the shelves aren't empty, somewhere where there is food for sale and and as long as you turn up with the money you can get food. Well that's the situation as we begin this chapter. For the last three chapters, the focus has been on what's happening over in Egypt as Joseph arrives there, as he serves in Potiphar's house, as he's falsely accused, as he ends up in jail. Uh, But then after languishing there for years, he's exalted to second in command over all the land of Egypt. But now the camera switches back to what's happening in Canaan. And in verse 5, we learn that there's a famine there too. Now perhaps that doesn't strike you as surprising. But the fact that there was a famine in Canaan and Egypt at the same time, it is surprising. It's very unusual. Do you remember what happened back in Genesis 12 when there was famine in Canaan? There was famine in Canaan. Where did did Jacob's grandfather Abraham go? Well, he went to Egypt. Why? There's no food in Canaan, so he goes to Egypt. In Genesis 26, there's another famine in Canaan. Uh, Jacob's father Isaac goes to the Philistines, uh, but it's obviously not intended to be the final stage in his journey because God appears to him and says, do not go down to Egypt. And so both Jacob's father's day and his grandfather's day, there had been famines in Canaan, but not in Egypt. So the fact that famine now hits both places at the same time is very unusual. Egypt was watered by the Nile. Canaan was watered by rainfall. A famine in, in one place didn't usually mean famine in the other. But now in God's providence, famine hits both places at the same time in order that God's plan of bringing Jacob's family to Egypt might be fulfilled. So we see God's providence at work here. Even at a time of rising prices, even at a time of famine, God is still in control. And that should be encouraging for us. But what about the rest of this chapter? It's, it's quite a long chapter. And maybe as you read it, as we read it, you thought, how is the story of this ancient family going to buy grain relevant for me? Well, I hope it's already clear by now that the life of Joseph points us forward to the life of Jesus Christ. He is the one who the whole Bible is about. And in this chapter, the brother's journey to Joseph is a picture of a sinner's journey to salvation. And as with last week, I think we have evidence for that in the New Testament. 
Last week we saw how words about Joseph in the last chapter are very similar uh, to words said about Jesus in John's Gospel. Whatever he says to you, do. And here the similarity is between what Joseph says to his self-righteous brothers in verse 18 and words that Jesus would say to a self-righteous man who came to him. Uh, They're exactly the same. Do this and you will live. Joseph says it to his brothers. Uh, Jesus says it to a rich young man. And we'll come later on to see the significance of that connection. But for now, it's enough to notice the connection is there. Joseph and Jesus, they speak to self-righteous people and they use the same words. But we'll start with the famine itself as a picture of our own spiritual hunger. And our first point this evening, which we'll just look at briefly, is you have a need. You have a need. Joseph's brothers needed grain. They had a hunger that nothing around them could fill. And that pictures everyone who hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus Christ. They have a hunger which nothing in this world can satisfy. But then in verse 2, the brothers hear there's a solution. Jacob hears that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Uh, Perhaps you heard about the gospel from a friend Maybe it took you a while to to take that initial step of coming to church. Jacob says to his sons in verse 1, Why do you look at one another? They're sitting there maybe thinking about what the next step will be. When Jacob tells them to stop looking at one another and go down to Egypt. They've heard that there's grain for sale, but it takes them a while to take action. Or perhaps you weren't invited to church by a friend, but you just uh, stumbled into a church one day or uh, something like that. And, and up until the point where you, you came to church, you thought Christianity was a load of rubbish, or you thought that all Christians were hypocrites, or you thought that Christianity was only for good people. But you started coming to church and you began to hear that there was grain in Egypt. In other words, you began to hear that salvation was on offer, even for someone like you. Someone who's not from the, the background that, that other people are from. Someone who wasn't brought up from it, and yet salvation is on offer, even for you. Maybe someone else grew up hearing from your parents that there was grain in Egypt, but you didn't think you needed it. And perhaps even tonight you feel that the opportunity has passed you by. But I'm here tonight to tell you that there is still grain for sale in Egypt. And it's time to go and find it. It's time to go and find it. Boys and girls, just to make it really simple. Joseph's brothers, they needed food. If they didn't get food, they would die. What what do we need? Well, we don't need food. Thankfully, we've lots of food in our houses, but we do need our sins forgiven. God wants us to, to live and not die, as, as Jacob says here. And the only way that we can live and not die and live forever is to put our trust in Jesus Christ. So firstly, tonight, you have a need. But you've also heard that someone can do something about it. 
You can say with Jacob, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. And even if you've never heard that message before tonight, you've heard it now. If the journey to Egypt isn't one that you've taken before, the brothers probably hadn't been in Egypt before, you may be full of apprehension. But the time for sitting around is past. Go down and buy grain that you may live and not die. That is God's message to you tonight. Go and buy grain that you may live and not die. So firstly, tonight you have a need. But then secondly, and we'll spend most of our time on this second point, becoming a Christian means facing up to who you really are. Becoming a Christian means facing up to who you really are. In verse 6, Joseph and his brothers are reunited after 20 years. Though while Joseph realises it, the brothers don't. He recognises them. He has maybe been waiting for them coming. They don't recognise him. Joseph had been, do you remember what age he was when he was sold as a slave? Boys and girls, he was 17 years old when he was sold as a slave. Uh, We're told in the last chapter that when he entered Pharaoh's service, he was 30. And before the famine came, there were seven years of plenty. So Joseph is at least 37 when he meets his brothers again. Two decades have passed. Joseph now looks like an Egyptian and he talks like an Egyptian. Verse 23 tells us that there's an interpreter between them. Joseph looks like an Egyptian, he talks like an Egyptian, and the brothers don't recognise him. And in a way, that pictures the first encounter that many people have with the Lord Jesus. They don't recognise him for who he really is. Maybe we think, well, I I need my addiction sorted out, I need help with my marriage, I, I want a community of people to be part of, and all I need to do is come to Jesus and he'll sort me out and send me on my way. We can see Jesus as the brothers see Joseph just as someone who can give them something, but not as someone who we have a broken relationship with that we need restored. We can see Jesus just as someone who will give us something, not as someone who we have a broken relationship with that we need restored. Perhaps someone even says, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll come to Jesus, I'll say a prayer, and then I'll be on my way. As soon as he gives me what I need, I'll be out of here. But Joseph says not so fast. He isn't going to let his brothers leave until their bigger problem is sorted out and we'll come to see in a minute what that bigger problem is but here in verse 6 Joseph and his brothers finally meet again and not only do they meet again but but what do they do in verse 6 they bow down to him the very thing that Joseph had foretold in his dreams all those years before that God had foretold to Joseph and Joseph had told to them. Verse 9, he remembers. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. 
He remembered it when they bowed down. I wonder, did he, did he remember it before that? Was this the reason why Joseph himself was meeting everyone who came to buy grain? Because he was just waiting for his brothers to come. He knew they would come. The last time the brothers had seen Joseph coming, they'd said, here comes the dreamer. And little did they know that next time they saw him, they would be fulfilling those very dreams. But maybe you're wondering, well, why doesn't Joseph just tell them who he is straight away? Why all all the, the drama of the next few chapters before he finally reveals himself to them? Well, it's because before the brothers see Joseph for who he really is, they need to see themselves for who they really are. Before the brothers see Joseph for who he really is, they need to see themselves for who they really are. In verse 9, he challenges them to see how they'll react. He says, you're spies. How do they respond? Verse 11, we are honest men. It's so ironic, it's nearly laughable. How self-deluded can they be? They might be being honest about not being spies, but the truth is that these are not honest men. And as the readers, we, we know this, and, and Joseph knows it too. The fact is that they have been lying to their father for 20 years about what happened to Joseph. Maybe we come to Jesus and we think that we're not that bad. We think that we just need a little bit of a helping hand. That, that we're mostly good, but we just need a little leg up from Jesus. Or we acknowledge that there's a part of our life that, that does need sorted out, but the other parts of our life are fine. Perhaps our assessment of ourselves is that we are good, decent, honest men, women, boys and girls. But because Joseph actually cares about these men, he isn't just going to accept their faulty self-assessment. He's not going to let them go on saying and thinking that they're honest men. He's going to deal with them in such a way that they will have to face up to the guilt of something they have been trying to ignore for 20 years. The gospel tells us that in Christ we are far more loved than we ever dreamed. But before we get to that point, the law must tell us that we are far worse than we ever imagined. And you can't have one without the other. To put it in the language of Pilgrim's Progress, we, we must meet Moses before we meet Christ. We need the law to show us what we're really like. And maybe you've found that since you started coming to church. That even though you might once have defined yourself as a good person, the Bible doesn't. And Jesus isn't going to leave you with your faulty self-assessment of yourself. Just as Joseph wasn't going to leave his brothers with their faulty self-assessment either. And so Joseph puts them in prison for three days. And he tells them that the only way they're getting out is if they send someone to bring their youngest brother Benjamin back to him and then come the same words that Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler in the gospels do this and you will live do this and you will live 
Maybe you've read that encounter in the Gospels between Jesus and the man. He's called, alternatively, a lawyer, a a young man, a a rich young man. And you've read that story and it makes you wonder because week after week in church, I say that your good works can't save you. (laughs) That's That's what the rest of the Bible says. But there Jesus has a man who comes to him. Jesus gets the man to summarise the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. How does that fit in? But of course the point is that the young man can't. If he could perfectly keep all the commandments, he would live. If you're going to go down the road of law keeping, you have to be able to perfectly keep every law of God all the time. But no one can. And it's only when we're brought face to face with that that we come to an end of ourselves and realise that the only way we can be saved is if someone deals with the curse of the law for us. The only way we can be saved is if someone deals with the curse of the law for us. And you see how similar that is to to what Joseph does here. He tells his brothers to go and get Benjamin. But they know that that is an impossibility. They know they can't just arrive home and say, well actually dad we need to take Benjamin with us. Because look what happens when 10 of them eventually do arrive home at the end of the chapter. Jacob tells them, my son shall not go down with you. No discussion. Benjamin is not going. Yes, if we read on, we we know that circumstances will change and Jacob will give in. But in the meantime, bringing Benjamin is an impossibility. And the brothers know that. Reuben even offers the lives of two of his sons in exchange for the life of Benjamin, if anything were to happen to him. But Jacob still refuses. What are the brothers to do? They thought it would be a simple matter of turning up to Egypt, handing over their money and going home with their sacks loaded with grain. But now they're facing death, as Joseph makes clear in verse 20. And they're facing death if they don't do something that they have no power to do. Just as Paul says in Galatians. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law tells us what we must do. It threatens death if we don't. And yet it shows us that we can't do it. What must we do to get the heaven under our own steam? We must keep the law perfectly. And it is the very thing we cannot do. Just as going and bringing, bringing Benjamin was the very thing the brothers couldn't do. And Joseph here gives them three days to stew on their inability. Three days to think. Three days during which the Holy Spirit will begin to convict them of their sins from all those years ago. Verse 18 is interesting. When Joseph tells them that he fears God. 
I wonder, is that the spark that gets them thinking about God themselves? Does it leave them thinking, well, here's an Egyptian who says that he fears God. Well, what about us? Either way, in verse 21, they're no longer claiming to be honest men. Instead, they say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. That is why this distress has come upon us. They have guilty consciences. For 20 years, they've been trying to ignore the voice of their consciences. Maybe quite successfully, but now facing the very real threat of death, being brought to an end of themselves, their consciences are speaking once more and finally they begin to listen. If you had a a guilty conscience about something and you were to go to to the average counsellor today, as long as you weren't confessing to to something illegal that they had a duty to act on, chances are the counsellor would tell you not to worry. You had an affair, no big deal. You stole something years ago from a company that no longer exists, it's fine. Stop living in the past. Get over it. But for these brothers to have the future God wants them to have, they must face up to the past. And that's true for anyone outside of Christ. To have the future God wants you to have, you must face up to the past. Have you a guilty conscience tonight? As you think of what God knows about you that that maybe no one here does. Well, don't try to ignore it, but take your sin to God. If there's something you need to confess or make right with someone else, do it. We believe the lie that time deals with sin, but it doesn't. If only enough time passes, God will forget. But two whole decades have passed here, and yet the guilt of the brother's sin remains unatoned for. And in verse 22, that's the word that Reuben uses to describe what they've done. It is sin. And no one argues with him. These brothers have turned up in Egypt telling, telling Joseph what they've told each other for years. We are honest men. But now, by God's grace, they're starting to tell a different story. In truth, we are guilty. In truth, we are guilty. Have you reached that point? They begin to describe what they did all those years ago as sin. And we must each reach that point before we receive the salvation that Jesus offers. Sin must enter our vocabulary just as it entered theirs. And not, not just to describe what other people do, but to describe what we do. To describe what we have done in the past and to describe what we still do. The brothers were guilty of Joseph's blood, or, or so they thought in verse 22. And we are guilty not of Joseph's blood, but of Jesus' blood. In the sense that if we'd been there, we would have shouted, crucify him with all the rest. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. 
And it's only when we reach that point that we are ready for the salvation that's offered to us. And this is the turning point for the brothers. It won't all be plain sailing from here on in, but by God's grace they have finally faced up to their sin. It has been a much more unpleasant trip to Egypt than they ever imagined it would be. And yet it has been infinitely, eternally better for them. And Joseph hears their confession. Because of the fact he's been communicating through an interpreter, they don't realise that he can understand them. But he does, and he weeps. No doubt there are different emotions mixed in with his tears, but surely at least part of it is joy. Joy that these hardened men have finally faced up to what they've done. Maybe the last words he had ever heard spoken in the Hebrew language were were their words to him when they threw him into the pit. But now he hears Hebrew spoken again and he hears the brothers confessing their sin. And when we do the same, when we confess our sin, the Lord Jesus hears us. And there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Becoming a Christian means facing up to who you really are. And what a joyful thing it is when we do that. When we see the ugliness deep within. And rather than pretend that it's not there, we instead let it drive us to Christ. And that's not just for the the start of the Christian life. We've been focusing on the start of the Christian life tonight. But it's not just that becoming a Christian means facing up to who we really are. Because being a Christian means continuing to face up to who we really are. And being honest about it. Yes, as Christians we are new creations. But we're still sinners. Saved by grace. We are still far from perfect. Let's not act as if we're past the point where we could ever sin against one another and need to confess our sins to one another. The Bible tells us to confess our sins to one another because it expects that we will sin against one another. Becoming a Christian and continuing as a Christian means facing up to who you really are. So firstly tonight you have a need Secondly, becoming a Christian means facing up to who you really are. Thirdly, and finally, remember that the cost for all this is both nothing and everything. Thirdly, the cost for all this is both nothing and everything. Picture these men as they arrive in Egypt with the attitude, we've got this. They, they are, as they arrive in Egypt, before they meet Joseph, what are they like? Well, they're, they're self-confident, they're self-assured. Yes, they have a need, but they also have money. They can just turn up, hand over the money, get grain and leave. But then picture 10 of them as they leave three days later. They are now humbled and chastened men who head for home. 
but they still have the need to be further humbled. And that happens in verse 35 when they empty their sacks and behold, every man's bundle of money is in his sack. What's this about? Is it a test? Well, maybe partly. But unlike with the incident of the silver cup that will happen later on, Joseph doesn't ask for it back. When they get back to Egypt in the next chapter, they bring double the money. But Joseph's steward, when they explain what's happened, he tells them that he's received their money. And that God has put the treasure in their sacks. So why is their money put back in their sacks? Why does Joseph do it? Well, I think ultimately it's Joseph telling them that he doesn't need it. Pointing forward to the true and ultimate saviour who doesn't need anything that we can give him. It's to further humble them and this truth is to further humble us. The brothers want to bring their hard-earned cash to to Joseph and go away with grain. They want to buy grain on their own terms. But he's telling them that that's not how it works. The grain is going to be given to them for free. And again, I think we can only fully understand the significance of this if we let it point forward to our salvation. Maybe we're convinced that Jesus is the only way. Maybe our eyes have been opened to our sin. And we can tick off the the first two points of tonight's sermon. That that we have a need. That we need to face up to who we really are. We've done that. But still we think that we can do something to earn our salvation. Say, alright God, I realise my life isn't as decent as I thought it was. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, this and this. And then we'll, we'll, be, we'll be even, we'll be all square. But God won't have any of that. Your salvation, if you're to have it, can only be free. You can contribute nothing. Not because it's cheap, but because the cost is infinitely beyond you. Not because it's cheap, but because the cost is infinitely beyond you. You can either accept salvation as a gift Or you can reject it. But forget any notion that you can contribute anything to it. What did it cost Joseph to give his brothers grain for free? Well it meant paying the price himself. Because the steward received the money. Who did he receive the money from? Joseph. And in a sense it also cost Joseph years of misery. For them to be given not only grain but their money back. Because if Joseph hadn't gone through his years of humiliation, if he hadn't gone down to the depths, he would never have been exalted to Pharaoh's right hand. He wouldn't have been able to help them. And in the same way, what did it cost Jesus to give us a full and free salvation? It meant him paying the price himself. And he did that by his humiliation, by going down to the depths for us, by humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Joseph had to pay the price himself and so did Jesus. Joseph paid it by his humiliation and so did Jesus. So where are you on this journey? Are you still trying to buy grain without any thought that your relationship with the Lord of the land needs restored? 
Imagine thinking that they can come to Joseph and buy grain when, or come to Egypt and buy grain when, when they have sinned against the Lord of the land. Unless that relationship is restored, they can forget about buying grain. Have you realized that your relationship with the Lord of the land needs restored? Perhaps tonight you are taking the first faltering steps since being confronted what you're really like. And if you first met the real Jesus many years ago, don't lose the sense of humility that the brothers gain here. For those of us who've been Christians for a while, let's not lose this sense of humility. Don't forget how deep your need for salvation was and continues to be, far greater than their need for grain. Don't forget the glimpses you've been given and are given through the word of what you are really like. And as you continue on your journey this week as a Christian, Remember what your salvation cost. It cost you nothing. Not because it's cheap, but because it cost him everything. And love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Well, in light of what we've heard tonight, the closing verses of Psalm 33 are very relevant. Psalm 33, it's verses 9 to 13 on page 62. Psalm 33, 9 to 13, page 62. Verse, two, verse 9 was true of Joseph's brothers and it's true of each one of us. The Lord from heaven sees all men and women and boys and girls views from his house each one he forms the heart of all of them he knows what they have done joseph knew what his brothers had done and jesus knows what we have done then we have verse 10 which vladimir putin would do well to remember the lord from heaven or a mighty army saves no king great strength no warrior brave vain hope for victory is a horse its great strength will not save and then in verse 12 we have another verse that's relevant to ukraine he will preserve their souls from death in famine life he'll yield that was true of Joseph's brothers here as well. He will preserve their souls from death. In famine life, he'll yield. He did it for them through Joseph. Of course, that is no guarantee that, that, that a believer will not starve in famine. But it does tell us that spiritually, none of us have to continue on in our hunger. Because we are being offered the bread of life. So Psalm 33 uh, 9 to 13, the tune is 101, we'll stand and sing praise.